Thank you for listening to the Words and Nerds podcast. I'm your host, Danny B. From all of us in the writing community, we just think you're amazing because you put your heart and soul into everything you talk about on this amazing show. The podcast has over 50,000 listeners every month. I love coming on your show and I love talking about it. Oh my God, I finally get to speak about it. Talk about all the things that I've been with by myself for so long. I mean, you provide that opportunity to so many of us and, you know, always are an amazing host. We chat about books, the writing process, and how literature has the power to change the world. But most of all, we have real conversations and we have a laugh. I'm feeling sick. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for being here and sharing the journey. Welcome to another Words and Nerds podcast where we bring literary goodness straight to your ears. Today, I welcome Kate Forsyth, a return guest to the podcast. Dr. Kate Forsyth is an award-winning author, poet, and storyteller. Her historical novels include Beauty in Thorns, which is one of my all-time favorites, The Wild Girl, and Bitter Greens. Today, we chat about The Crimson Thread. Now, Kate, you have been on episodes 27 and 118 and whatever this number's going to be. Thank you for coming back it is such a pleasure it's always lovely to chat chat with you it is and it was lovely that we caught up at a writing festival um a few months back too so it's always nice to see each other in person i remember our conversation we talked about dresses which is a really important topic it is a really important topic i'm well known for my love of dresses i always think why wear jeans when you could wear a dress and and my best friend says why wear a dress when you could wear jeans and so (laughs) I think you can kind of divide the world into those who love dresses and those who do not absolutely and I am taking dress um I annoy my kids frequently because every time I walk past the shop I'm like oh dress I need to try that on they're like no no more dresses ladies so I I totally (laughs) understand it's a bit of an addiction (laughs) you can't have too many dresses or shoes or bags in my opinion (laughs) that's the best advice and you should always listen to Kate because Kate has the best advice Now, The Crimson Thread, another beautiful novel, historical novel with beautiful characters, and I loved our main character as well. And just a gorgeous cover too. I'm sitting here looking Isn't at it. Isn't it beautiful? Just beautiful. Oh. I think when you add red to a cover and gold, how can you go wrong? So can you start with an elevator pitch for The Crimson Thread? Absolutely. The Crimson Thread is a historical novel for adults that reimagines the ancient minotaur in the labyrinth myth set in the Greek island of Crete during World War II. It tells the story of a young Greek woman, Alenka, who must choose between her family and her country and between her brother, who is a traitor and a collaborator, and the man that she loves, who is an undercover spy working for the Allies. Mm, You don't make these books simple, Kate. It's very complex, many layers. That's what I love about them. Yes, complex and rich, I like to think. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely, definitely. Now, tell me about the Minotaur in the Labyrinth and how the Crimson Thread is a reimagining of this. So the Minotaur in the Labyrinth is um, a very, very old myth which actually originated in Crete. Um, It tells the story of uh, um, how the king of Crete, who is called Minos, uh, was punished for his, his arrogance by the gods Um, and his wife was cursed to give birth to a boy that had the head of a bull. King Minos was so humiliated and um, ashamed of this monstrous child that he had his son, the Minotaur, locked away in a dark and vast labyrinth underneath 
the um, palace. And the labyrinth was so complex that anyone who found their way in there would never find their way out again. Now, um, the Minotaur was fed on the blood and flesh of seven young men and seven young women who were sacrificed to him every seven years. And um, a, a young hero, a, a prince named Theseus, came to Crete in order to fight with and defeat the Minotaur and to stop this blood sacrifice. According to most tales, the princess of Crete, whose name was Ariadne, fell madly in love with Theseus and so she um, revealed the secret of the labyrinth to him. She held one end of a spool of crimson thread and he uns unspooled it as he made his way through that labyrinthine twists and turns. And after he had killed the Minotaur, the two fled, but Theseus abandoned her left her and she in in most myths she dies of grief mm, wow that is a story <laughs> yeah it is really um an incredibly rich story it's got so many layers mm. of meaning and symbolism of course most of the you know the version of the myth that we know are the ones that are told by men which center theseus as the hero of the tale um, and most of them don't tell the ending of the story. I prefer the older, more matriarchal myths in which Ariadne is like the goddess herself, uh, a, a manifestation of the goddess, the great goddess, or she's the mistress of the, of the labyrinth. And she, of course, um, is the one that enlists Theseus. It's her cleverness that cracks the secret of the labyrinth. And after he abandons her, she actually um, falls in love and marries Dionysus, who's the god of wine and festivals and epiphanies, and uh, she becomes a goddess herself. And Dionysus takes her crown of stars and he flings it up into the night sky and it becomes a navigational tool to help people find their way home. Oh, wow. And so I prefer that version of the mm. myth. Unsurprisingly, Danny, <laughs> knowing me. I love it. So what parts, I mean, without giving away too much of the crimson thread, because I'd hate to give away anything in there because, you know, that's part of the joy of reading this book is not knowing what happens. What what did you take out of of those myths to put into your book? Like what was the main sort of thread, excuse the pun, <laughs> that, you, that you took out that you wanted this book to have in that reimagining? So I think some people misunderstand what I do. Um, they think that I'm doing what I would call a literal retelling yep. of, of a myth or a fairy tale. But um, what I do is what I would call a metaphorical retelling, um, or you may prefer the term a figurative retelling. So I don't have a bald-headed boy. <laughs> no, you don't. I don't have an actual labyrinth. And I don't actually have um, a spool of crimson thread that's used to guide one out of the labyrinth. Um, what I do is I take the the symbols and mm -hmm. structures, the motifs, the metaphors, and then um, I use them to kind of um, you know, give archetypal power to the story that I'm telling. Um, the term I tend to use is um, it's a shadow story. So I have my primary story, which is set in Crete during World War II. It's a story of love and war and resistance and betrayal. It's a story about battles and and um, spies. But 
underneath, hidden within that that primary story is my shadow story, which is this very, very ancient myth, which is also a story of love and war Mm. and betrayal. Mm. But even as you were saying those things, you know, like you don't have the the bullheaded boy, but you can see in your characters, you know, that might align to some characters in the book. And then, you know, the labyrinth, you know, I'm I'm thinking that's the the complexity of the storyline and of the choices your protagonist has to make. Exactly. So um, metaphorically speaking, um, you know, when I'm planning the novel, I would ask myself, well, what does what does the Minotaur stand for? Mm. You know, what what does it symbolize? And the Minotaur symbolizes the the darkest of human desires and and the deepest human fears. Mm-hmm. And so what is the most, um, I think, the most awful um, expression of, of the darkest of human nature? And, of course, it's war and it's violence mm-hmm. and it's the desire to control and dominate and um, it's forcing one's will upon another, all of which is bound up in war. So for me, war is the true minotaur. And then that metaphor is embodied in various different characters throughout the book, primarily in Alenka's half-brother, because, of course, the minotaur was Ariadne's half-brother. And so in the book, her half-brother is um, half-German, illegitimate. Um, He has been shunned and hated by his society because of this, and so he hates them. And because he's half German, he he has like a very idealistic view of Hitler and Nazism and and the Germans. He he welcomes the German invasion. Um and but all along, hopefully, you can see that he has choices. He has choices to make about whether or not he becomes a Nazi collaborator and whether he's a traitor to his own people and whether he betrays his family or whether he chooses not to. And so, you know, to me, um, free will is a very important part mm. of of human nature as well. Yeah, absolutely. Now, set in in the in the time period that is in Nazi occupied Crete. I mean, there are still so many stories I find within this time period. You know, so many stories have been told, but there's still so many stories to tell. Mm. What were your challenges writing in this time period? Um, well, you know, firstly, I need to say that I think one of the reasons why we continue to be so fascinated with the Second World War is because it's it's within our living memory. Mm. Um, you know, my great uncle fought in Crete, um, and when he was only a young man, he was only twenty one or twenty two years old, which is the same age as my son, as one of my sons. And the idea of one of my sons having to go off to the other side of the world and and fight in that way is just terrifying. Um, the, the oldest people who ever fought in the Second World War are now beginning to die. It, 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 it will soon be lost to us. And I think that there's a, a great need to collect and express these stories before they are forgotten. And by these stories, I mean the true intimate first-person accounts yeah, of definitely. what it was like to live through them. You know, the facts, the generals, the battles, that's recorded history, but unrecorded history are the personal stories. And so I felt um, I take as one of my mantras um, Isabella Allende's um, strictum to tell what should never be forgotten. And so I'm always drawn to stories that I feel should not be forgotten. So that's, 
but that's my first point. Um, for me, um, it was all about taking a story that is both very, very personal and yet still very, very universal. Mm-hmm. And so finding that balance between one person's story of the war and everybody's person of the of the war, how to make it seem fresh and vivid and immediate and terrifying as it must have been to those who lived through it. One of the problems of there being so many stories being told now is that um, they begin to feel a bit hackneyed and a bit um, repetitive and you begin to feel that we've heard these stories before and that's very much a feeling that we should not be having about this war. Um, so that was my my biggest challenge was how to make it urgent and alive and vivid and real. But, you know, um, that's one of the things I love to do most. That's that's one of the things that draws me to, to telling this type of story. Um, and it's part of the challenge of writing. You know, what is so wonderful about writing is because it's difficult. Mm. It's the difficulty that makes it worthwhile. And if it was easy, I wouldn't want to be doing it. <laughs> but I think that with anything in life, the most rewarding things you've ever done have also been the hardest. You know, writing a book, having children, finishing uni, perhaps, you know, your PhD, all of those things, the the hardest things you've ever done are often the best things you've done or achieved. I absolutely agree. I absolutely um, agree. The other great problem for me was um, bringing Greece of 1940s alive. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's an untold story. We're very used to stories of... Um, French resistance fighters um, and, you know, there are other countries that are almost as popular as France when it comes to setting World War II stories. But there haven't really been very many set in Greece and there have been none set in Crete. Mm-hmm. And so um, that was a great gift to me because it's an untold story. But then I needed to honour the story. I needed to make sure that um, it was as real as I could make it. And so that meant I had to immerse myself very deeply in the culture and the history, the music, the food, the dancing, the fashions, um, the the belief systems of Crete in the 1940s. I love that. I love all of that. <laughs> it's really interesting. And, yeah, I was thinking the same thing when I was reading it. So I've read a lot of books set in that time period and I thought I don't think I've read one with, you know, set in um, Crete, you know. And I, you're probably right, I hadn't. <laughs> <laughs> you know, really, um, you know, because I've read every book that's ever been set in Crete, really, as part of my research. Um, and, you know, some of them were books that I had read when I was a teenager when I first got fascinated with Crete, and some of them were new to me. Mm-hmm. And so there's The Island by Victoria Hislop, which has a very small section set during the war, but the war doesn't touch the story. It's not mm-hmm. a story about the war. It's um, her book. Um, you know, covers 80 years in uh, of, of this one village in Crete in the um, in the 20th century, and so it it isn't doing what I'm doing at all. Mm, really interesting. Now, I always love your characters. I particularly love your female characters, and I know we've talked about talked before about you know making sure that you bring the forgotten woman into light, and you know giving her space and character. Now, Alenka is no exception. You know, there's complexity, and you you love her journey, even though it's it's hard and it's complex, and she's got these you know impossible choices to make. How did she come to be? 
So, um, Alenka, I mean, I always um, start with story, um, but I can't write the story until my characters have come to life in my imagination. And that can sometimes take quite a long time. Alenka was always just Alenka to me. Sometimes characters just come really fully formed into your imagination and, um, you know, that they just speak in their own voice right from the very beginning. Um, I, Jack was the same for me. So Jack is is my male protagonist of the story. Um, and he was very much inspired by my own grandfather and by, um, you know, my own family. I gave him the name of one of my great uncles who fought in the war, Jack. Um, so my great uncle was Jack Humphrey and he was is Jack Hawk. I gave him the experiences of another of my uncles who is, his name is Jerry. And I gave him the skills of my grandfather. So my grandfather was a, um, uh, a self-taught musician who could play any piece of music that he'd only heard once on wow. any instrument. Oh, my goodness. I know. He was just incredible. Amazing. Um, and during the war, um, he, he, he actually also taught, him, taught himself Morse code and he built himself a radio when he was a boy from bits of old wire. Oh, and my things. goodness. And when he was, um, he joined up um, to the RAAF and he actually became, um, at first he was the decoder of more signals sent by the Japanese and then he became a crypto um, analyst. So he was decoding secret messages. So I gave all of that to my character, Jack, and I also gave Jack my own stutter, which is a speech impediment that I've struggled with all of my life, as you probably know, Danny. Um, so Jack felt very real to me and very close to me as well. Um, the character I struggled with the most was the character of Jack's best friend, Teddy. Mm, I was going to um, ask about Teddy and how, mm, without giving anything away, how you wrote all those characters and, and to me, Alenka and Teddy stood out for me. Yeah, um, you know, Alenka, I think, is is a lot like myself you know she loves music she loves to dance she loves poetry she loves books um i made her secret childhood book the secret garden which is you know one of my favorite mm -hmm. childhood books and i had the great pleasure of rereading it again while i was writing this book which is always lovely to revisit a childhood favorite i gave her my love of cooking and of gardens um the one thing that in book that uh Alenka loves which I didn't know how to do was how to, to embroider. And so I had to learn how to embroider what I was writing. Oh, wow. That's impressive. Yeah. And now I absolutely adore it. And, I, and um, I'm and i making a quilt. Oh, like my a goodness. Quilt, and it's, you know, it's become like a new obsession of mine. Wow. So Alenka taught me how to embroider. My goodness. And are you going to take photos of these and share them with the world? Yeah, I'm very, I'm yeah. very curious. <laughs> um, I'll put them, um, I have put some up on Instagram, but I'll put some more up for okay. you. I'm going to have a look. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to have a look. As soon as this interview is over, I'm intrigued. Yeah. I, love, I love how the writing of this book has led to a new skill for you. Oh, I know. That's exactly right. But I couldn't, um, you know, in the book, Alenka um, embroiders um, messages on her wedding quilt yep. in secret code. And I couldn't work out how she was going to do that. I couldn't describe her doing it until I'd actually learned how to embroider. Oh, that's that. fascinating. And it was actually not easy to do. And, you know, it actually took me, that was one of the great challenges of the book as well, was working out that whole thread about, you know, embroidery, this woman's 
um, maligned art and then bringing it to life on the page. So, but Alenka, apart from the embroidery, was it was really, I think, very like myself. Teddy was very difficult and I had to rewrite Teddy over and over and over mm. again because I couldn't quite get him right. Um, and this is because he is... He is a complex and problematic character. And he, um, like Axel, who is my true antagonist, um, he he could have gone either way. Mm. And what I wanted to show is that he was just in, like an ordinary young man, um, a, a bit of a larrikin, a bit wild, liked to get his own way in things, liked to, you know, liked girls, was keen to have an adventure. But... Over the course of the of the war, he is kind of shadowed and darkened and hardened by what he has to do and what he's taught and and you know his 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 training as a soldier and in, eventually as an undercover agent um, who was trained to kill. Um, and I mean, I guess what I wanted to do was to show that. Um, he too could have gone either way, but he didn't. Mm. Um, he 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 was made monstrous by war, and so I wanted to show that once you know war, which is you know my metaphor for the Minotaur. You know, war is the true monster in the book. We think that war is made by monsters like Hitler, who are greedy for power and control. And you know, want to rule the world, want to crush everyone under their boot. But war makes everyone monstrous, yeah. or has the potential to make everyone monstrous. And so that's what Teddy's role was in the book. And that having to show that progression was difficult. Mm, really interesting, though, too, because what is interesting is everyone can go through a very similar experience of war which i imagine is horrible and monstrous but then everyone sort of comes out different so it's interesting whether it it brings out something that was never there or it brings out something that was always there beneath the surface that always fascinates me about how different people respond to trauma exactly so we have jack and teddy who are a boyhood friends who've mm. been best friends since they were eight and their life has followed very much the same pattern. They went yeah. to the same school. They went to the same university. They were both studying the same subjects university. They signed up together. They fought side by side. And yet Jack becomes, mm. you know, extraordinarily heroic. He's one of the fa my favourite characters I've ever created. You know, if I wasn't mad in love with my husband, I'd be mad in love with Jack. <laughs> I think you can still be mad in love with Jack. <laughs> and then you know and then teddy goes the other way and so you know and i i know that's a bit of a spoiler but it's impossible to talk about mm. teddy and what i was trying to do and the choices that i made yeah, in relation to the character without yeah. i found know, that also, tricky as well i found that I'm like mm, how am i going to ask these questions about giving too much yeah, away <laughs> yeah well, look i kind of think and that, i don't think uh, we're giving too much away i don't know i think that everyone can see right from the very beginning that teddy is is yeah, yeah. Um, I think so. From the very beginning, he's ambiguous, and you think, "Oh, who is this person?" You know, and some people have talked about there being a love triangle in the Crimson Thread, but it isn't a love triangle because you know, for me, a, a love triangle is one person trying to choose between two mm -hmm. people that she can't decide between. What, what, 
Well, that was not the dynamic here. The the um tri you know the triangle of conflicting tensions is between Alenka and um her, her feelings for both Jack and Teddy in different ways. Yes. But it's also between Teddy and Jack. Mm. You know that they're best friends, and um that puts a lot of a strain on their relationship as they both develop feelings for this young woman. And it's also about the different choices that they make. So. Mm, absolutely so rich so complex that's what I love about your books and I love talking about them I could talk about them you know all for so long okay <laughs> <laughs> now you've yeah. got a number of dedications at the beginning and I think you've already covered that you've yeah. got you know your grandfather and your uncles and I just thought it was so nice to have them all there and you know really sort of attached to the experiences in these in this book i thought that was really special so you've got your father your grandfather your great uncles and um also reg and jerry quirk who fought um on crete in 1941 like it's really special that you know they were the people who were actually uh, there and you're honoring you know their story in a way yeah exactly right well the you know the very first seed of an idea for this book was planted when i was about 13 or 14 when I first heard the story about how my great uncle Jerry fought on Crete when he was a young man and it was an incredibly um exciting and dramatic story like it, it really stuck in my memory um and I, I also have to um say it, it's also partly because his brother Reginald who fought in Papua New Guinea when he came home and was married and had young children he went out one day to buy a loaf of bread and he never came home. He simply disappeared. Um, and I was told this story the same night that I was told about um, my great uncle Jerry and his his battle, um, his, his war on Crete. And this story of the father and husband who went out to buy a loaf of bread and never came home and never known what happened to him, that really stuck like a burr in my imagination mm. as well. Um, the implication was that he'd suffered so much during the war, he couldn't adjust to civilian life. Wow. And so he, he just ran away mm. or, or he, he killed himself wow. and his, his body was never found. And so that, and then I also read the story of the Minotaur and the Labyrinth and the same couple of days when I heard, you know, so these three stories, just made it very, very memorable to me. Now, I never, I didn't know back when I was 13 that one day I would write a book set in Crete. I just <laughs> knew that, it, that the island had become um, a place of mystery and danger and magic and and um, interest to me. And so all, as, as I've, I've grown up, I've always been interested in it and always wanted to go there. Mm, I love that so much. Now, Kate, I've asked you this question, I know at least once, but I think the answer kind of evolves and changes over time, or maybe it stayed the same. But why do you write or why do you still write? Um, it's it's always a very difficult question to answer. I mean, the simple answer is because I must. <laughs> um, I've always written. I've always wanted to be a writer. I began writing as soon as I could hold a pencil I was writing poems and novels and stories all through my childhood and adolescence. I never wanted to do anything else or be anything else. And I'm only happy when I'm writing. Hmm. Um, I don't know who I would be or what my life would be like if I didn't write. 
I don't know what I'll do with my time. <laughs> what do people think about? You know, um, I really can't. In like, it, 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 it's part of my DNA. It's part of my blood and bone. Um, it's as natural to me as breathing. So I don't like the idea of not being able to write. Is actually really awful and terrifying to me. Why do I keep on doing it? Well, not writing is just not an option for me. Um, and I, I would be writing. I hope right up until the time that I die. I can't imagine life without it. Mm, that's a great answer. And I think it's, um, yeah, it's a really important answer that you don't know who you are because it's tied up with your identity. And then, you know, it's, it's kind of a must. So I like how people always say I'm compelled to and I must. And then you dig a bit deeper and you find these really interesting um, reasons why people, you know, feel the need to to do that. So, and it is, like you said, it's very hard and it's this puzzle and it's, you know, all consuming and challenging. But then when you have this beautiful book, as we do in our hands, you know, um, you know, you see all the work that you've put into it and see how beautiful it is. But another beautiful book, Kate, I love speaking to you about your work. And Thank you. you know, just I can see how much you immerse yourself in the worlds and in the characters. And that is exactly what comes out on the page, because as a reader, you're immersed in that world, you know, and you find yourself in between chapters thinking about the world and wanting to go back into the world. And that's the case with all of your books. I still think about um, the novel um, with the artists that I loved so much. I still, yep, I still think about that novel all the time. And when I went and saw um, the artwork in Canberra, I bought the book of all the beautiful artworks and I still look at it and still think about it and those characters are still very real to me. It's still very real to me as well. Like, you know, um, it's always difficult to let a book go out into the world because you've held it so close with, like it's Mm. it's been born out of your own body, Mm. Um, but you need to let it go. But um, I'm still, I don't know if you can see my my wall of art oh yes me. i can i can let me just turn that so you can see my wall is covered in oh beautiful some of yes. it's painted by my grandmother and some of it is painted you know by other artists but a lot of it is pre-raphaelite art because mm. i'm just fascinated by i fell in um, love with that art after i read your book i just in yeah. love with it <laughs> i haven't stopped my love affair for it well narrative art you know uh, art that tells stories mm. you know that's you know powerful well, yeah. as no. you know, storytelling, I think, I, I think of storytelling as the connective tissue that holds human society together. Yeah, and so sure. anything that explores and expresses story is always going to appeal to me. Mm, absolutely. And same with me. And it's just funny that that is one of those books that are just stuck with me, you know, just stuck into my brain and I just yeah I fell in love with all the characters and the art and everything about it so it was it I always look forward to your books because I know I'm going to fall in love with all of that it's very very powerful though you know oh thank you so much Danny I mean um and I guess in a way that's an answer to your earlier question you know why do I write um it's because I want people I want you to feel that way I Mm. want um, I think of a book as a gift that I'm giving to someone. I want it to inhabit their imaginations. I want them to be enchanted and I want them to learn things that they've never known before. Yeah, absolutely. And that is part of it, isn't it? And um, what I love about it as well, as you've seen this before, when you put a book out into the world, you don't, as the artist, you no longer kind of own it. 
and it's the people who read it bring their own interpretations and love of it etc and you just have to let it go in the world which is interesting because you were saying you know it's born of everything that you have and then you have to let it go in the world so it's an interesting process it really really is you know um writing for me is just so fascinating every single step of it Mm. um and my creative process is slow but deep Mm. And, um, you know, and then only when I feel like I am really deeply immersed in the world can I feel as if I can bring it to life in the imagination of others. Yeah, I love all of that. Well, thank you so much, Kate. As you know, I really enjoy speaking to you. Um, It was great to bump into you at that festival the other day as well. And um, I just always look forward to what you've got coming up next. So thank you so much for spending the time. Thank you so much, Danny, and wishing you the very, very best with your writing as well. Congratulations (laughs) again. Thank you. (laughs) 